Hi, my name is Melissa Dealey, and I'm a registered health coach and integrative health practitioner. And during this blissful parenting boot camp, I am going to be talking about does the food your children eat cause behavioral issues? And we're going to dig into that. And we're also going to be talking about common and little known nutrient deficiencies that can impact kids' behavior. We're also going to be talking about how we got here and what's going on in our world today that is triggering this because we all know there are more diagnoses of kids with behavioral issues than at any other time in the history of the earth. So why is that happening? And I will also be talking about lab testing and ways that you can actually find out exactly what is going on inside your child's little body. Is it food intolerances? We can test for that. Do they have bacterial or yeast overgrowth? We can test for that. Or maybe they're deficient in their vitamins or their minerals. Or maybe they've been exposed to some toxins that are in their body at a level that is too high for their body to be coping with. And we can test for that. So I look forward to having you join us at this workshop boot camp and digging deep with you to figure out what may be going on inside your child's body that is causing behavioral issues. So don't forget to register for the Blissful Parenting Behavior Bootcamp at blissfulparentingbootcamp.com. See you there. Imagine getting up every day full of energy as if you were in your 20s again. What would that be like? What would that be worth to you? What is your health worth to you? Think about it. Your health isn't everything, but without it, everything else is nothing. And yet too many of us are taking it for granted until something goes wrong. No one wakes up hoping to be diagnosed with a disease or chronic illness. And yet we've never been taught how to be proactive in our health through our school system or public health. As a registered health coach and integrative health practitioner, I believe it is time this information is made available to everyone. Combining new knowledge around your health and the ability to do my functional medicine lab tests in the comfort of your own home will allow you to optimize your health for today and all your tomorrows. Don't wait for your wake-up call. Welcome back. Melissa Dealey here host of the Don't Wait for Your Wake Up Call podcast. And today we are starting a whole new four-week theme within this podcast. And this theme is going to be all about food. And who doesn't love to talk about food? Although this might be a different talk on food than what you are typically used to. And I just want to highlight how uh, important food is to our health and some of the misnomers around food and some of the teachings that we have come to know that may not be helping you in you being the healthiest that you can be. So let's dive right in. Now, we all know we eat food for energy and we all know that our digestive system breaks down that food and uh, turns the food into um, molecules that are then passed into our bloodstream and through to our cells and our mitochondria in order to give us energy. And 
that all happens without us really thinking anything about it. And in the future, I will be doing a whole series on digestion. So I'm not going to dig into the digestive side of food today, other than to say that our gut health is different for each and every one of us. And as such, the food that we eat is different for each and every one of us. The food that allows our body to thrive. Our microbiomes are as individual to us as our fingerprints. And they go back four generations on our mother's side. And why is this important? It's important because where did your mother live or your mother's mother's mother mother live i.e. four generations ago. So the food that you're eating today and the food that your body likes and thrives on is going to be relevant to your cultural history as well. And in today's modern world, many of us have moved away into new places and are actually eating quite differently to the way our predecessors or our forebearers were eating. And that's something that you might want to be factoring in. So often we get bombarded by the media and all those magazines in the checkout aisles at the grocery stores, etc. of eat this way, you know, vegan diet is the best or keto diet is the best, or maybe it's the paleo diet is the best, or it's the carnivore diet that is the best. And it gets so confusing it's hard to know which is best. We have friends telling us they did really well on the keto diet. They lost all this weight, so you should do it too, et cetera, et cetera. We have all of this information coming in that doesn't factor in our heritage and it just doesn't factor in our own unique microbiome. So when I work with clients, I really love to teach them to figure out the right way to eat for their unique body. And part of doing that is creating awareness around how we feel when we eat certain foods. I always love to say, listen when your body whispers so it doesn't have to yell at you. But it is really important for all of us to just slow down and check in with ourselves. How are we feeling to notice how do we feel when we eat something at the time of eating it? And how do we feel two hours later when digestion is likely to be completed or nearly complete? Are we feeling bloated? Are we feeling gassy? Are we feeling heartburn? Are we feeling nauseous? These are all signs that our digestive system is maybe not functioning as well as it should. And perhaps our body isn't loving the food that we eat, but it's not necessarily as easy as just checking in with ourselves in the moment, because unfortunately, very often food intolerances don't show up as symptoms for 48 to 72 hours after eating. So keeping a food journal can be really helpful if you are struggling with food and aren't sure why um, you're not feeling great and you think it's food related, but you haven't figured out exactly what it is, that keeping a food journal and limiting the foods that you're eating um, 
each day. So you're not introducing a whole bunch of different foods every day. And that just makes it really hard to narrow it down. But just having a few different foods throughout the day, tracking that over the course of three days to see if you can see any patterns and then changing some of those foods and doing that again for three days is one way that you can start to pinpoint what foods might be causing you problems. But just bigger than foods even causing you problems, it's more the whole concept of trying to eat a certain way because that's what the media is saying is best, or that's what the popular diet is right now. I really want to invite you into the concept that there are as many diets on this planet as there are people. And so to do away with these preconceived ideas of, I need to follow a certain diet plan. The reality is that there are good aspects to every single diet plan that is out there, but to follow them as dogma can actually be negative for you and your unique body type. So as an example, there are many people that thrive on plant protein and they can do very well on a vegan diet, for instance. But there are other people who truly need animal protein to access really good energy, which of course is why we eat food. And so that person is not going to thrive on a vegan diet, even though their spouse might, their sibling might, their best friend might, it's not going to work for them. And so trying to follow a program because it works for others, even when it's not working for you, doesn't mean failure. It means I tried that. I listened to my body. My body is telling me that this isn't the best way to eat for my body. And I need to try something else. If I know animal protein worked for me and I tried vegan, it's okay to go back to having animal protein. And I think sometimes we get stuck in this place of it's not working for me. There must be something wrong with me. There's absolutely nothing wrong with you. It's just your microbiome is different to the other people who thrive on a vegan diet. So give yourself the um, permission to go back to what was working before or something that works better and keep looking for a way to eat for your body that works better for you and gives you more energy by paying attention and checking in and noticing how you are feeling. This is so individual. And I know that can also be problematic when we have families and we were raised where, you know, one meal was served at the dinner table. And if you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, or older, you probably were told, well, you have to eat everything on your plate because there are people around the world that are starving and eat it, even if you didn't like it, even if your body was telling you it wasn't great for your body, you were told as a child to eat it. And your parents were simply doing what they had been taught and doing their best in that moment and trying to ensure you were getting nutrition and food into your body, not realizing that your body might not do well with that particular food. And you were trying to voice that your body didn't like it. And maybe 
you weren't heard because you were a child and they just thought you were being difficult. And again, they were taught, don't waste food. Other people are starving, eat it. And so you grew up eating it. Your body kind of stopped talking to you. You stopped understanding the signals because now you think it's something I've eaten my whole life, right? But it's something that your body still doesn't love and can still cause you problems. And that's okay to discover that as an adult too, right? We're all learning every single day. And when you understand foods that don't actually work for your body, you can choose to remove them entirely or just eat them less frequently. And it becomes a choice that food doesn't make me feel great. So I'm not going to eat it today because I want to feel great tomorrow. Or that food doesn't make me feel great, but everyone else is eating it. I kind of enjoy it in the moment. It's a celebration. I'm going to eat it right now. And if I don't feel great tomorrow, that's okay. I can lie around on the couch. It's the weekend. Everything becomes a choice. So it's just understanding that all food isn't perfect for everyone that I think is really important. There can be healthy foods that I can enjoy, but you might not, and vice versa. And so really spending some time discovering what foods work for you is really eye-opening and enlightening for people instead of just following the mainstream of what we've been told. And here's the thing, the way that you eat changes throughout your life. If you stop and think about it, you don't eat the same way as an adult in your 30s and 40s that you did as a teenager or that you did as a toddler. And you're not going to eat the same way when you were a senior either. So the way we eat is always evolving and we, in, we are changing the way we eat as our body changes. And we do that quite well. But the other piece that we can do better, I believe, is not listening to the latest fad diets and trying to follow them, but instead listening to your body and what your body wants and then following that, that is going to get you so much further because when you listen to what your body wants and avoid what your body doesn't want, you're already right away starting to lower the inflammation response in your body. Because when you eat foods your body doesn't want, it creates an inflammatory response as your body tries to cope with that. And ongoing inflammation can lead to you know, pain and joint, joint pain within the body, et cetera, you know, and it can also left unchecked lead to cells turning on disease. We want to be lowering the inflammation on our body. So as I said, there's many different diets in the world as there are people. So you learning how to eat in a way that honors your body is really important. And there are ways that uh, we can do this. There's, you know, food sensitivity lab testing that we can do that gives you 194 um, common food irritants that goes through uh, everything from dairy to grains, to vegetables, to fruits, to nuts and seeds, and legumes and beans, et cetera. 
to show you what your body likes and what your body doesn't like. And it's really empowering because once you've done that lab test, you can see exactly what triggers your body has and remove those. And it doesn't have to be about removing them forever, but removing them for long enough to allow the body's inflammation to come down and then start reintroducing them and choosing to eat them less often. So that's one way. Some of the things that I um, share with clients, one of my favorites is just doing a four-day protein energy experiment to determine, does your body do best on animal protein or does it do best on plant-based protein? Or do you do quite well on a balance of both? And that's something that's fairly easy to do that you can do yourself. You can simply map out four days in a calendar and plan your meals so that one of those days you're going to have animal protein all three to four meals in your day. And you're going to note how you feel during that meal, as well as two hours later at, um, for each meal. How's, what's your energy level like? And then the next day, you're going to do all plant protein and have no animal protein at all. And again, notice while you're eating and then two hours later, what are your energy levels? And the next day, you're going to mix it up and you're going to have um, for two of your meals. So maybe you start and end the day with animal protein and you have plant protein at lunch. And on the last day, you're going to start and end your day with plant protein and just have animal protein at lunch. And as you map that out over the four days, checking in at each meal, and then two hours later, you might need to set a timer on your watch so you don't forget to check two hours later and note how you're feeling what your energy level is on a scale of zero to 10, zero is no energy, 10 is super high energy. And once you map that out over four days, you might see a clear indication of which type of protein is best for you. And then you know. And when you know, it's also much easier to be confident in all of your meal choices. There's also some other theories that you can look into. There's the blood type theory. There's a book out on that that you can look into. And depending on your blood type, it recommends different foods and different proteins that your body's going to do better with. And there's also a metabolic type theory um, that you can Google and you can check into that and see uh, what your body likes best based on your metabolism. So there's a few different options that you can look at in order to start to figure out what is the best way to eat for my unique body. Now, as unique as we all are, there are some things that we know work really well for humans across the board. One of the most researched and um, best diets for most of the population is actually the Mediterranean diet. And again, there's going to be some foods within the Mediterranean diet that some people can't tolerate, but it is a great overall diet as a starting point for most people. And in, in addition to that, and what it incorporates that is so good for all of us is that the, our human body does really well 
with whole food, plant-based nutrition. And yes, there might be animal protein added to that, but we still do all need to get our greens, our carbs in our fruit and veggies. And many of us are not getting enough. What we need in order to eat the rainbow and get all the benefits of the vitamins and minerals and polyphenols, et cetera, that our body needs to thrive is seven to nine cups every day of fruit and veggies. And you might think, wow, that sounds like a lot. And it might be a lot compared to where you're at today, but it's actually quite easy to do. And you can work your way up to this. So you could have two or three cups of fruit and veggies for breakfast in the form of a breakfast smoothie. So it's pretty easy to actually blend up two, let's say two cups, a cup of fruit and a cup of veggies, or maybe you start your day with two cups of fruit in your breakfast smoothie. That is a powerhouse breakfast full of good vitamins and nutrients. And you're making it super easy on your digestive system to process it because you've already blended it up. And so it's so much easier for your body to break it down in order for those vitamins and minerals and nutrients to get into your bloodstream and into your cells to create energy. So starting your day with a smoothie is an excellent way to start your day. And there's so many um, different variations of smoothies that you can make. So I personally love to start mine. It's a mostly a fruit smoothie. I'll either do a whole bunch of berries and some coconut milk and some coconut water. I'll throw in some hemp seeds for some plant protein. I'll throw in some chia seeds for my omega-3s. Um, I'll throw in a bit of a protein shake powder for a bit of extra protein. I might throw in a little, you know, a tablespoon of coconut oil to just get some good fats in there for me. And I drink that down over the course of an hour. Sometimes I'll make a, a different smoothie that might include some frozen mango and some frozen pineapple and some banana. And again, some hemp seeds, chia seeds, some uh, protein powder and make that with some almond milk and some water, blend that up, same thing. Drink it over the course of an hour because it's packed full of good nutrition and I don't wanna overwhelm my system by drinking it down too quickly. And when I drink it slowly over an hour like that, it leaves me feeling satiated for longer. And then I love to have a plant-based protein meal at lunch because my body does quite well and I can go between plant and animal protein. So I tend to have animal protein once a day, plant protein um, for my breakfast and my lunch. But again, that's for you to figure out what your body does best with. But my lunchtime meal is three cups generally. And I don't measure this out. I just make my serving size. You know, you kind of get used to it after a while, but always salad with lots of green spinach and kale and arugula and lots of veggies in there from carrots to peppers to, you know, tomatoes, mushrooms, trying to change that up with the season. Recently, I've been having a lot of asparagus, so many yummy veggies out there. So that's my lunch. And you can, um, I add some avocado again for half a, or for a good dose of good quality fat, or maybe I'll drizzle some olive oil over that salad for some good fat to get that into my lunchtime meal. And then in the evening, three more cups 
of veggies, whether it's raw or cooked or a combination of both with some animal protein and then um, possibly some starch as well at that meal. So it's not too hard to get your seven to nine cups in of fruit and veg. And if you're getting all different colors from your dark greens to your reds and purples, et cetera, you are getting such a great range of all the key nutrients that your body needs to thrive. If you're enjoying these episodes, learning about your health and recognizing the power that you have to be able to step into optimizing your health, then you might like to know about my upcoming Health Optimizer Group program, which is starting on June the 7th. It is open for registration now. And if you register before May 21st, you get 20% off. This is a four week group program and we will be diving into how to optimize your sleep, looking at stress, how it impacts your body and how you can better manage your stress levels, including an external assessment tool to highlight where your greatest stressors are so that you can understand that and take action in lowering your stress levels. We'll also be digging into the microbiome, something that is unique to you, as unique to you as your fingerprints. And in understanding the microbiome, you understand that it is the epicenter of your health. And in the final week, we'll be talking about the brain-gut connection because understanding that also allows you to function cognitively at a higher level for much longer. I hope we get to a place where we can change the health outcomes in the world today and have people start living longer and dying shorter. Having cognitive function right to the end, like my grandmother did, and the inspiration for me diving into this work. So I wanted to let you know about this program because when you know how to heal your gut, or optimize the health of your gut or microbiome and heal your nervous stress system or lower the stress on your body. You significantly change your health outcomes for the better and seriously lower your chances of suffering from some kind of chronic illness. So you can check out this program in the link in the show notes and I look forward to having you join me. So these are some tips on um, starting to figure out the right way to be eating for your body and for your health, because the reality is, is that the food we put on the end of our fork is either our greatest form of healthcare or our slowest form of poison. And if we're eating processed foods on a regular basis, those foods are slowly poisoning our body because those foods are full of chemicals to extend shelf life, sugars to make them addictive to you, which uh, are we are addicted or sugar is highly addictive to humans. And so it can be a real problem and it is a known toxin and it's in everything that's processed these days. So you're going to be getting that as well. So yes, you're getting food, but you're getting food that's quite deplete in nutrients and has too many toxins and chemicals, et cetera, in it. And so that's why processed foods can be the slowest form of poison 
But when you're eating a whole plant food-based diet, choosing to shop in the produce section of your grocery store, getting those seven to nine cups in a day with good quality proteins, whether that be plant-based or animal-based, that your body is going to thrive and it will have huge impact on your health. And in fact, my guest next week, I'm excited to bring in is somebody that literally healed herself by turning to food and changing the way that she and her family ate. So I'm excited to bring her, um, this guest and her story to you. So with food, there are so many myths out there as well. And one of them that I hear often is that I can't afford to eat healthy. The cheaper food is the less nutritious food, and that's all I can afford. But the reality is that when we choose nutrient-dense foods, we are satiated for longer. And as a result of being satiated for longer, we don't need to eat as often. Ideally, we want to be eating about three and a half to four hours apart each of our meals. And so that's like our three main meals of the day, breakfast, lunch, dinner, with maybe a snack in the afternoon between lunch and dinner. And again, a good, healthy, nutrient-dense snack will get you through. It's when we're eating foods that are highly processed, that are loaded with sugar, that we don't feel satiated for as long, and we end up having to eat more often because our brain is telling us that we're hungry and we need more energy. And, or the brain needs more energy. So then we um, respond to that with food and hunger because we know that food gives us energy, right? So the reality is, is that when we eat these nutrient dense foods and we prepare our meals at home, that it's actually costs us less than eating out and eating processed foods all the time because we eat less. And there's been uh, studies on that that I've seen, and they kind of show the scales as well with the numbers where the processed food, all the boxes of the processed foods actually weigh the scales down more because in the end, it's costing more money. It might seem like it's costing less because in the moment when you're buying it, you might spend less on groceries, but you're actually eating more of it and, and shopping more and reaching for snacks, et cetera, more often than if you're preparing and cooking nutrient dense meals. The other thing is, is that um, obviously there's, you know, organic food and there's not non-organic food and people are saying, I can't afford organic food and organic food um, doesn't have any more nutrients in it than non-organic food. It has less toxins. It doesn't have no toxins because we all live in one atmosphere and the toxins from non-organic farms can blow over onto organic farms. So it's not that there's no toxins, but there's definitely less toxins with organic food. And it's definitely the way to go if you can afford it. But if you can't afford it, you might want to consult the Environmental Working Group web website, ewg.org, for their annual Dirty Dozen Clean 15 list. They update it every year. And the Dirty Dozen are the 12 produce items that absorb uh, pesticides and herbicides used on farms 
easily and they get into the food. And then when you eat them, they get into your body. So you want to uh, try to ensure you're always buying those foods as organic. And then the clean 15 are the foods that have thicker shells or skins and the toxins don't get into the actual fruit or vegetable and you're not eating the skin or the shell. And so those foods you can buy as non-organic and know that you're not adding to your toxic load when you do so. And if you absolutely can't buy organic, you can actually clean your non-organic fruit and veg with a combination of some, a tablespoon of baking soda in some warm water and let the fruit soak and gently scrub it. And that's more effective than just running water over the fruit to wash it. So hopefully that's helpful for you. And the other thing that um, is really important when we talk about food is that so often we um, get to a place in our life where we want to lose some weight. And food is obviously the easy thought around this is, well, if I eat less, I'll lose weight, right? And it's, we simplified or oversimplify our relationship to food as simply being calories in and calories out. And sometimes we can add in exercise. So if I eat less and I exercise more, then I'm going to lose weight. And yes, that can be very effective, but sometimes there's more to it than just calories in, calories out, and exercising. Sometimes our weight gain is related to our stress levels. Sometimes our weight gain is related to our hormones and whether our hormones are in balance. So our bodies are more complicated than just calories in and calories out. That is a piece of it, but it is not the only piece of it. And when I work with people, sometimes what I see is they're focusing so much on that that they and they keep lowering the amount of food that they're eating because they're not losing weight. So they think I'm still eating too much, so I have to eat less and I'm still not losing weight. That is a sign that something else is going on. And that's when it can be really helpful to be running labs to see where your hormones might be out of balance. Because once we know that, we can address that and bring them back into balance. And then the body will lose weight naturally because a body in balance doesn't hold on to excess weight. We can also be running labs to determine what your stress levels are at, where they're out of balance, how your cortisol levels are um, out of balance to your diurnal rhythm that can be affecting sleep. And we're also interconnected that all of this is impacting our ability to gain or lose weight. And when we spend too much time focusing on just the calories in and calories out, we can put our body into survival state and turn on our sympathetic nervous system, our rest and our, sorry, our fight or flight state, which I've talked about in many previous episodes. The body doesn't make mistakes. The body is always charged with keeping us safe and keeping us alive. So if the body starts to notice us eating less and eating less and eating less, the body is going to go into survival mode to prevent starvation. 
And the body's going to say, okay, she's eating less. I have to hold on to everything I'm getting and I have to make it last longer. So I'm going to slow down the metabolism in order to make every morsel of food last longer. And as we slow down the metabolism, we start to put ourselves into this negative cycle of not being able to lose weight, even as we lower our caloric intake. So be careful of that and understand that our body is very complicated and we can't oversimplify things. Another example of this is back in the 80s when our governments oversimplified a solution to the fact that in the Western world, they were seeing more obesity and more heart disease and more diabetes, and they wanted to stop that. And they oversimplified the idea that if we don't want to be fat, we shouldn't eat fat. Now, interestingly, it's only in the English speaking world where we had this idea that we have to now go to no fat and low fat because the word fat in our food is the same as the word fat on our body. In the non-English speaking world, if you look around, they don't have the same problem that we have today with even higher levels of obesity, heart disease, and diabetes as a result of this strategy to curb that because they didn't have that same flawed logic that if we don't want to be fat, we shouldn't eat fat because they use different words for those two types of fat. But in North America, in the UK, in Australia, the English speaking world, in the last 20, 25 years, we've seen our levels of obesity and heart disease and diabetes soar. And part of that is due to this mistake that was made where government said we shouldn't eat fat. And so the food industry responded and took the fat out of foods and started marketing low fat and no fat foods. And we were all taught that we should eat low fat, no fat. I know that's what I was taught. That's what I did. I bought low fat yogurt and skim milk, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because I believe that is what I should do if I didn't want to be fat. But here's the problem. When the food industry took the fat out of the food and started making low fat, no fat at the very beginning, it tasted like cardboard. The fat is where the flavor was coming from. And when we removed it, the food tasted awful. So people weren't going to keep buying it. So the food industry added sugar. They added salt to make these no fat, low fat foods more palatable so people would eat them. But they also were very smart because they knew how addictive sugar and salt is to us. And we would buy more of it as a result of having those ingredients in the food that we were eating. And before long, they started adding salt and sugar to many, many, many foods that are on our grocery store shelves to this day in the freezer section, in the processed food aisles. They've come up with over 50 different names for sugar. As consumers got more astute and started figuring out sugar, they started renaming it and coming up with chemical names to make it even harder and harder for consumers to even read labels and determine, well, how much sugar is truly in this product. The great news is, is that in Canada, by I believe it's 2022, 
there is a new law about food labeling that requires that all sugars are indicated together. Doesn't matter what the name is for sugar. There could be three or four different names of sugars on one label. All of them have to be listed together in brackets under sugars in the ingredients list so that it's really obvious how much sugar is in a product. And you no longer have to be a scientist and understand all 50 different names. So that is coming. Companies have been given time to start switching over their labels to meet the government deadline, but that is coming. And that is really great news because you don't have to be a super detective in order to figure out how much sugar is in the food that you're eating. So Something else that's exciting is another interview that I'm doing a couple of weeks from now is inviting a guest in and we will be digging into food labeling because she has spent years in the food industry and has a program that I've recently done with her called debunking the food industry. So I'm excited to bring her uh, interview to you in a couple of weeks as well. But just back to some of these myths that um, we have been told or taught at, or that have come up around food, truly the biggest and most damaging one was to eat low fat, no fat, because it actually made our health worse. And we do have way more heart, di uh, heart disease, diabetes, and obesity levels now than we did 25 years ago. So the eating low fat, no fat was an absolute failed solution to the problem that we had back in the 1980s. Instead, we have to be choosing healthy fats. You know, trans fats are not good fats. Those are not allowed in our foods, but healthy fats. Some of my favorites, again, go back to the Mediterranean diet that I mentioned previously. Good quality olive oils, good quality avocado oils, coconut oils, ghee. Those are my top four healthy fats. And we want to be getting a little bit of those every day, about one to two tablespoons per meal. Our body does need it. Our brain is made up of fat. It needs fat. It's made up of water. It needs water and hydration. So we can't cut these things out of our diet entirely, but we can choose healthy options. So um, another thing that we were taught for many years, I know I was, is that fruit juice is a healthy way to start your day. And Fruit juice alone is not a healthy way to start your day because fruit juice is literally the juice of the fruit. So it's natural sugars. Yes, there are fruit juices with added sugars as well, which we absolutely do not need. But even fruit juice with no added sugars has a lot of natural sugar fructose in it. And when we eat the fruit, we're also getting the fiber of the fruit at the same time. And that fiber is helping to balance out the sugar intake that we're getting, the fructose, so that our insulin levels are not spiking. But when we dr just drink the juice from the fruit, we are literally just getting the insulin spike because we're just getting the sugars. And it's spiking our insulin. It might give us a bit of energy, make us feel good for a little bit, but we're going to be crashing soon. And so if you are starting your day with fruit juice, what else can you be having with that fruit juice in order to stop the insulin spike? So you want to be having some protein or some fiber or some good quality fat with that fruit juice to start your day and not 
something else that's loaded with sugar, like a sugary store-bought muffin, for example. So you could be having, you know, if you like to start your day with a cup of fruit juice, maybe you're going to have that with half an avocado. Um, how, how can you be adding in some protein, some fat, or some fiber with that fruit juice in order to stop that insulin spike? Or can you start your day instead with, you know, a glass of filtered water, maybe with the juice of half a lime in it or half a lemon or your smoothie rather than just that cup of fruit juice. And you might never have looked at what is the sugar or quantity of sugar in your fruit juice, even when there's no added sugar, but have a look because you might be surprised how high it is. And four um, grams of sugar is a teaspoon of sugar. And you might find that one cup of your fruit juice has 16 or 20 grams of sugar in it. And that's four to five teaspoons of sugar. And you would never eat that. And so do you want to be drinking it? So just be aware of it and think about that as you choose how to start your day. So we've also been told, uh, if we go back to some diets that are out there, um, the keto diet is kind of the opposite of that message we were given in the 1980s. And now the keto diet is looking at high fat, but low carb. And that might work for people for weight loss for a couple of weeks, but it isn't going to work for the long term. And it can actually be quite detrimental in the long term. Because again, our body does need carbs. Carbs are not bad. We need those carbs. We need a, a variety of carbs because if we're not eating them, how are we getting that wide range of antioxidants and polyphenols and vitamins and minerals that our body needs that come from all the different brightly colored fruits and vegetables that are out there? If we just cut those out thinking that they're bad, we're reducing our body's ability to get the nutrients from those foods that our body truly needs in order to thrive. So as I end here, I just want to circle back to where I started that each of us needs to figure out the right way to eat for our body and not follow the fad diets as dogma and do exactly what they say, because that is where we can get ourselves into trouble. As I said, they might work for the short term, they're not going to work for the long term. If they, if you feel like they are working in the long term, it's very often because there's some other root imbalance in your body that it's masking. And that if we actually resolve the imbalance in your body, that you can then eat in a way that is far healthier overall without following one of these diets that is not allowing your body to get the array of nutrients that it needs. So I hope those are some, there's some tips in there for you today, a lot of information around food, and it might just start you thinking more about food, the types of food you're eating, how your body's feeling, how to eat in a way that really allows your body to thrive and have the energy that you should get from the food that you're eating. Because after all, that is ultimately why we put food on the end of our fork and put it into our mouth in order to fuel our body with energy. 
So thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please share it with others that can benefit from it. And I look forward to having you come back next week as uh, I introduce my guest and we talk about how she used food to heal herself. Until then, stay well, be healthy, and always remember that health is your true wealth. Hi, my name is Melissa Dealey, and I'm a registered health coach and integrative health practitioner. And during this blissful parenting boot camp, I am going to be talking about does the food your children eat cause behavioral issues? And we're going to dig into that. And we're also going to be talking about common and little known nutrient deficiencies that can impact kids' behavior. We're also going to be talking about how we got here and what's going on in our world today that is triggering this, because we all know there are more diagnoses of kids with behavioral issues than at any other time in the history of the earth. So why is that happening? And I will also be talking about lab testing and ways that you can actually find out exactly what is going on inside your child's little body. Is it food intolerances? We can test for that. Do they have bacterial or yeast overgrowth? We can test for that. Or maybe they're deficient in their vitamins or their minerals. Or maybe they've been exposed to some toxins that are in their body at a level that is too high for their body to be coping with. And we can test for that. So I look forward to having you join us at this workshop boot camp and digging deep with you to figure out what may be going on inside your child's body that is causing behavioral issues. So don't forget to register for the Blissful Parenting Behavior Bootcamp at blissfulparentingbootcamp.com. See you there. Thank you for investing this time with me on the Don't Wait for Your Wake Up Call podcast. I'm so glad you joined in. If you can take two minutes to share this episode with someone you think can benefit and have a positive impact on their life, that would be wonderful. Please leave a review by going to your favorite podcast listening app and let me know what you enjoy or would like to hear more of. It will support me in my effort to bring the possibility of natural healing to a wider audience and help disrupt the sick care system we have today and make human health a global priority. Health is your true wealth.